If you placed yourself under the authority of the scripture and said, Lord, interpret me through your word. Let my life be molded into how you want me to live through your word. This book is clear, and I pray you'll fall in love with it. The early church always believed it was the word of God. What about you? Revealing the divinity of Christ throughout scripture. This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. On our last broadcast, we began a brand new series called Unwrapped. In it, we looked at the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. But does the church today rely on this as its foundation? Here's David with the second section of his sermon, The Inspired Word of God. In that burning bush in Exodus 3, when Moses asked, God, what's your name so I can tell Pharaoh? And God responded, tell Pharaoh my name is I am who I am. That was my voice. I'm the one who said that to Moses. And in Exodus 13 and 14, when the tabernacle was being built, I built that tabernacle because I'm at the center of it. My very presence in the cloud was the glory in that tabernacle. That was all about me. And in the book of Leviticus, don't you miss Leviticus? (laughs) For those of you who weren't here, we went through Leviticus over six months uh, during this past year. But Jesus. And in the book of Leviticus, those first seven sacrifices necessary for the forgiveness of sins, they're all pointing to me and my sacrifice on the cross. They're no longer necessary. And the high priest outlined in all specificity in Leviticus, that high priest is now me, looking to me, the mediator between humanity and God. And all those seven festivals at the end of Leviticus, every one of them finds their fulfillment in me. And in Deuteronomy, Chapter 18, verse 15, there's the prophecy of the great prophet who will come that all Jews look forward to coming. Moses was speaking about me. I'm that great prophet. And the historical books from Joshua, Judges, all the way from 1 and 2 Samuel to 1 and 2 Kings to 1 and 2 Chronicles, I am the one who oversee, oversaw Israel's history. I, I was the one guiding it. In every way, because I had to keep that nation together, because through that nation would be born a savior of the world, Christ the King. That's me. And Ruth, a Gentile, brought into the Jewish family through a marriage to Boaz, was brought in by the whole concept of the kinsman redeemer. And I'm the kinsman redeemer of all the Gentiles in the world. Like Ruth, now brought into the family of God by grace through faith. That was talking about me. And Job, after all of his suffering, cried out, I know my Redeemer lives. That's talking about me. I'm that Redeemer who now lives. And in the book of Psalms, I am the majestic king in Psalm 8. I am the one in Psalm 22 that's looking forward to Messiah who suffered brutally on a cross with people howling at the base of the cross. That's me. That, that's why on the cross I cried out Psalm 22:1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we say the creed, he descended into hell, you're talking about that moment when all the sins of the world came upon me and my father and I were separated in our intimate relationship. That was talking about me. And in Psalm 24, I'm the king of glory. In the Proverbs, that's all about the wisdom literature. Solomon describes wisdom. I'm wisdom. Solomon was talking about me. And in all the prophets, Isaiah in chapter 6, I'm that child birthed into the world in Isaiah 6. I'm Emmanuel, God with us in Isaiah 9. 
I'm the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. I'm the day of atonement in Isaiah 61. In Jeremiah 24, I'm the branch of righteousness of David's seed that it talks about. That was talking about me. (laughs) And in Habakkuk, the promise that the righteous will live by faith, that was talking about salvation that I'll give through the cross. That was about me. And in Joel 2, and it says, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a prophecy about me. And what will happen when people call upon my name? It was about me. And in Malachi 4, I am the son of righteousness. People long waited for. That reference to the son of righteousness is me. I'm Daniel's son of man. That was about me. With Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the one in the fiery furnace with them. That was me. And folks, I just scratched the surface. During this trek between Jerusalem and Emmaus, this stranger slowly went through all of the Old Testament scriptures and showed how all of them pointed to Jesus. Then after they arrived at Emmaus, interestingly, they still didn't know it was Jesus. But when Jesus broke the bread to eat with them, they realized who he was. There was something in the breaking of the bread, something in the mannerism by which he broke the bread that helped them realize it's the resurrected Jesus. Then he disappears. I love it. Because if you ever ask the question, how old are we going to be in heaven? Jesus died at 33. Most athletes say they're at their prime, 32, 33. Wouldn't it be cool if we're 33 eternally? Healthy, alive, well. And the reason I ask that's because, you know, my dad died when he was 91, and his body was broken. My mom died when she was 86. Her mind was racked with Alzheimer's. You know, I don't want them to be 91 and 86 forever. But when I get to heaven, I never knew my dad when he was 33. But I tell you what I will be able to know. There'll be something in that gate, the way he walked, that was uniquely dad. And that voice, that voice that God envied himself, that deep, resonant, baritone voice that will say, Hi, David. Welcome home. I'll know. I'll know. So if Jesus is God, then we've got to have Jesus' view toward the Old Testament. He constantly used it to refute the Pharisees and to fight off the devil. He used it to show himself in every part of Genesis to Malachi. So therefore, the only conclusion can be is Jesus is God. Therefore, he thought the Bible's Old Testament to be authoritative. So must we. It's just not an option. So what about the New Testament? So glad you asked. Jesus appointed apostles, 12 of them, to walk with him. He then later included Paul after Judas betrayed him. And he gave these apostles a special calling that you nor I have, a part of that being to plant churches but also speak with the authority of Jesus himself to those churches. So in the upper room discourse, John 14 through 17, The night before Jesus died, he says these two extraordinary things to his apostles. 
In John 14, 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So when the Holy Spirit fills your heart, which is the birthright of all believers, this Holy Spirit will give you a special benefit, apostles, and you will have as a gift to you the ability to remember all that I've ever said to you. No Alzheimer's. No amnesia. You're going to remember everything I ever taught you. Then similar in John 16, 13, Jesus says to the apostles, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So the Holy Spirit who lives within you is going to be my mouthpiece to your eternal soul. And I'm going to speak to him to remind you of truths that I've taught you. Now, why is this important? Jesus sent his apostles into the world to plant churches. And they would teach those churches right doctrine and then right ways to live out of that doctrine. But oftentimes those churches would step outside of right orthodoxy or right orthopraxy, right orthodox practiced out. And whenever the apostles, who were by three definitions, someone who had walked with the Lord, someone who was an associate of someone who'd walked with the Lord, and someone who had seen his resurrection, those in the early church were the qualities for an apostle to write the authoritative word of God. So Matthew, was he an apostle? Yes, one of the 12. So his words were the words of Jesus. Mark, was he an apostle? No. But with whom did he walk? Peter, who was an apostle. So Mark's words are Peter's words, which mean they're the words of Jesus, who's God. Luke, was he an apostle? No. But with whom did he walk? Paul, an apostle. So when Luke writes Luke and Acts, he's writing the words of Jesus. And of course, John is an apostle. Then these early churches that were formed at Colossae and Corinth and Galatia and Rome, of Ephesus, all these places, whenever they would step outside right boundaries, one of the apostles would write epistles, letters to those churches. And they would correct orthodoxy and they would correct orthopraxy. And when they wrote to those churches, they clearly understood that they were giving the very words of Jesus himself. They believed that the Holy Spirit who spoke to their hearts all truth was communicating through them the words of Jesus to his church. So therefore, the New Testament from Matthew through Revelation, the epistles being Romans through Revelation, those letters from the apostles were the word of God. Why? Because they came from Jesus' spirit himself. Therefore, if Jesus is God, we must have God's view toward the Old Testament. If Jesus is God, we must have God's view toward the New Testament. Therefore, Genesis through Revelation is the word of God. If you believe Jesus is God. If you don't believe Jesus is God, you can look at this as a nice book and my, my guess is it gets dusty on your shelves. Or tough passages that you don't like you reinterpret through culture or through your own personal preference. But Christians don't have that right. If we call Jesus Lord, we must have his view toward his word. And therefore, it speaks to all of us as the authoritative 
infallible, God-breathed word. Now, I have that up there with a question mark. Do you believe that? Do you believe the Bible is the infallible, inerrant, God-breathed word? It testifies to itself in that way. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Paul says, for the scriptures is given to us for rebuke, for reproach, but it is God-breathed in every possible way. You must make a decision about Jesus and his word if you're ever going to grow in your faith today in this year. Now, let me begin to answer a couple of questions that are raised at this point. People ask, aren't there thousands of errors in the manuscripts, especially in the New Testament? The answer is yes. In fact, there are 400,000. Gulp. What do we do with that? Well, you need to realize there are 25,000 different manuscripts that we have, far more than any other book that's ever been written, far more than the Iliad and the Odyssey or, or, or any other book, and yet we never question their authenticity. But what happened through the years? Now, if we had the original manuscripts of all the original books written by the apostles, by the prophets of the Old Testament, they would be without error, but we don't have them. But the ones we do have have been copied over hundreds of years, and at times over candlelight, someone would make a copyist error. An A would become a V, or, or a word would be miswritten. And if you've got 25,000 manuscripts, if one gets miswritten, it doesn't take long for it to go to 400,000, does it? But you need to hear this. There is no copyist error of those 400,000 purported errors that have any influence on the proper orthodoxy and orthopraxy of the Scripture. None. Zero. Nil. Nada. None. I just said that, didn't I? Okay. None. So it's a moot argument from those who are critics. Also, you need to understand there is a clear meaning in every passage of Scripture. When you interpret it rightly, there is what the early church fathers called the perspicuity of Scripture. Are you impressed I can even say that? What does the word mean? It means clarity. The perspicuity of the Scripture means the clarity of Scripture. There is a clear meaning of every text. For example, if you were on a desert island and you only had this book, you could read it and come up through the Holy Spirit's inspiration with the perspicuity of the Scripture. It's there and it's clear. Therefore, culture does not interpret this book. You nor I interpret this through our own personal preferences in order not to, be, not to offend anyone or to be liked by people. Our call is to place ourselves under the authority of this book because there is a clear meaning to every text. And every minister of the word has the responsibility, no matter how much you like it or not, to tell you the perspicuity of the scripture. And that's been my life. That's been my life. To do that. And I hope you will too. What about all those difficult texts, those ones that are hard to understand? That's the fourth week of the message series. You've got to come back for that one. But I'll deal with many of those really difficult texts to help you understand. But you know, they comprise about 5% of the Bible's perspicuitous messages, its clear messages. As someone once said, it's not the 5% of the texts that are difficult to understand that bother me. It's the 95% that are perfectly clear that I do nothing with that bothers me. What will you do with this book? What will you do with Jesus? and his lordship.
It's a precious gift that God has given us. Written over the ages through the prophets and the the, um, apostles. A book of 66 books. 39 in the Old Testament, 20. uh, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. The early church always believed it was the word of God. What about you? Have you placed yourself under the authority of the scripture and said, Lord, interpret me through your word. Let my life be molded into how you want me to live through your word. Or are you typical of the sages of this world that say, I'll interpret it the way I want to. This book speaks to all areas of faith and practice, including human sexuality, marriage, caring for the poor, being generous with God's money he's given us, taking the gospel into all areas of the world, marriage and family. This book is clear. And I pray you'll fall in love with it and be people of the book. For people who call themselves Christ followers, there's really no other option. And I would invite you, please, open it and read it and most importantly obey it you're listening to moments of hope with david chadwick coming up david joins me in the studio in an insightful conversation about this morning's moment of hope we'll be right back this is the ministry minute focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. I'm Mark McManus, and here is Jim Noble with the Dream Center Charlotte. Hello, my name is Jim Noble with the Charlotte Mecklenburg Dream Center. And Bo and I, the director of the Dream Center, just wanted to take a minute and tell you guys thank you. Moments of hope, David and Marilyn Chadwick, all of you there, Dean, uh, we all have been phenomenal for us. Uh, you, you've been there since 08 when we started King's Kitchen, and that kind of grew into the Dream Center, and the meals we've fed the last eight weeks, probably exceeding 55,000 now, I guess. Uh, we're so grateful you guys have made such an impact in the city by reaching out to those that have needs greater than we have. And uh, what do you think, Bo? Yeah, so it's been amazing to, to just watch the, the work that's happened um, with the meals as they've gone out. You know, uh, we, I always tell people it's not about the food, it's about the relationships that are formed and the ministry that takes place. And so, um, and JT Williams and Thomasboro and Reed Park, I mean, it has opened up doors that we never thought would be open. Um, you know, we've seen people come out um, and just welcomed us with open arms, just so grateful for the meals and, and we just thank you moments of hope and just this couldn't be this wouldn't be possible without you guys and you know uh the, the first call we made uh when we decided to go this route and provide these meals was the moments of hope and it was uh, a phone call that was met with a resounding yes and so we're so appreciative of you guys and just um everything you all do for us and for the kingdom and not only that but you uh, also sewed into our kitchen in the dream center now this week started producing meals there and as the restaurants open back up all the meals will shift to the dream center with the kitchen you helped us do so we're so grateful you guys god bless you god bless moments of hope and we just 
pray an unlimited return harvest on the seed you sowed into this ministry. Thank you very much. I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jen. Great being with you as well. Well, this morning you wrote a moment of hope with another relationship tip for us. Will you share that with us today? I will. We've talked over the last couple of weeks about, I think, relationships 101 advice, things like if your brother or sister hurts you, go meet with them face-to-face immediately, not email, text, talk to another person, (laughs) go face-to-face and meet with them. Another one is if you possibly can step over the offense, do so. There's no reason to carry the grudge. If you don't have to step over the offense, Well, here's a third piece of advice that I have found very helpful as we deal with relationships because we all have them. We live in community with one another. Here it is. Believe the best in others until proven otherwise. May I say it again? Believe the best in others until proven otherwise. So imagine how different the world would be if we would believe the best in each other. Mm. The truth is we get hurt or we hear a rumor about someone and we immediately assume the worst about that person. God does not want us to do that because if we do, we will end up being a part of the problem, not the cure. We will be condemners, accusers, blamers, and God just doesn't want us to be there. The richest friendships are when people live together and they believe the best in each other. When a friend is flawed, but we choose to accept and step over the flaws, how much richer and deeper the relationship is. Now, there are certainly times when we must proceed in a friendship carefully, especially if there are indicators that someone's motives for seeking a friendship may not be genuine, or perhaps they have been unfaithful to us in a previous way. In those situations, we ask for God's wisdom and protection not to step into something we shouldn't. Yes, prudence is important, but until a friend proves to be unreliable, believe the best in that person because we all need friends. We all need someone who sticks closer than a brother, Proverbs 18, 24, especially when we're walking through very difficult times in our lives. That's why we choose to believe the best in others until proven otherwise. I really like this, David, and I really appreciate the fact that you said the richest friendships are are these. And really what comes to mind is you're looking for the gold in one another. Anybody, it doesn't take an expert to see dirt. You know, we've all sinned. We all have shortcomings, but to see the gold in somebody, and I just like that play, it does become a rich friendship. It does, Jen. And as we've talked before about some of these relational tips, they're not just church-appropriate tips. They are tips for the workplace Mm -hmm. as well. Um, When you're in the workplace and you have to work as a team with other people to succeed with something, if you're always looking for the negative in another person, that team will eventually not succeed. Mm -hmm. But when you believe the best in the other person and you're trying to promote their giftedness so that they can succeed, that means that the team will succeed and you as well. So again, this tip to believe the best in other people until proven otherwise is a tip not just for Christians in the church. It's a tip for all people relationally who live in community, even in the workplace. This is so good. Such practical wisdom for us today. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Jen. And if you listeners would like to receive 
these daily written Moments of Hope from me, go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there free of charge from my heart to yours every morning in your inbox at 7 a.m. to begin your day with a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. We'd love to have you join us for worship this Sunday morning. We meet at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte at 10 a.m. You can find more information on our website, momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. And also, check out David's Hopecast. They're both free and available at momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to pray for unity in our city.